Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast, where we explore ideas around mental health, equality and social justice. I'm Thea Joshi, and this podcast is a place where we talk to people with lived experience of mental health problems, people working in a specific area of mental health, or some of our own team, to discuss how we're engaged in the fight for equality in mental health. A few weeks back, I spoke to Nick O'Shea, the Centre's Chief Economist, and Charlotte Rayner, who's the lead of the Children and Young People's Mental Health Coalition, to talk about investing in children's mental health. So we've done a lot of work on children's mental health over the decades, including on the economic case for investing in support for children. And back in December, we launched a new report called Time for Action, calling for an end to the postcode lottery of care, and also setting out how strategic investment could improve children's mental health. So Nick and Charlotte kindly sat down with me to discuss all this and more. Hello, it's wonderful to be here in 2022, uh, the beginning of a fresh year, and I'm delighted to be here with Nick O'Shea, who is the Centre's Chief Economist, and Charlotte Rayner, the Coalition Lead at the Children and Young People's Mental Health Coalition. Hello. Hi, Thea. Hi, Thea. Lovely to, uh, to hear your voice. <laughs> um, so I'm with Nick and Charlotte. We are over Zoom today. Uh, because of working remotely but the joys of technology we can still connect which is wonderful Um, so uh, we wanted to get you on today um, to talk about a really critical area of our work which is children's mental health and specifically about investing in children's mental health and so um, as you guys will know we launched a report back in December called Time for Action um, which I'll link to in the show notes which looks at how we can end the postcode lottery of care through strategic investment So Charlotte, I'm going to dive right in and just put you on the spot a little bit. Could you set the scene for us uh, about children's mental health in the UK at the moment? Yeah, of course. Um, So um, recently we have sadly been seeing a rise in the prevalence of mental health difficulties. So NHS Digital, um, they have done recent prevalence surveys. They did one in 2017, 2020 and most recently in 2021. And what that, um, what that survey has shown, the um, rate of mental health difficulties has increased from a prevalence of one in nine um, children in 2017 to one in six, six to 16 year olds in 2021. So we have seen an increase. And this does relate to common mental health problems, such as anxiety and depression. The data from last year also shown that we're seeing an increase in other um, disorders, such as a rise in eating disorders, so um, these were up from 7% to 13% in 11 to 16-year-olds and from 45% to 58% in 17 to 19-year-olds. So we are really seeing this increased rate of prevalence. Then we can't forget the COVID-19 pandemic as well, which has had a massive impact on the mental health and well-being of children and young people. Um, the centre's own research has shown that 1.5 million children under the age of 18 could need new or increased mental health support as a result of the pandemic. So we are really seeing this increase. At the same time, um, we are seeing services now struggling to cope with demand. Children and young people's mental health services have been historically underfunded and undersupported, which we'll talk about later on, I'm sure, in the podcast. Um, but they're starting to really feel the squeeze and the pressure. Um, young people typically find it really hard to access support for mental health services. There's really long wait times. I think wait times range from eight to 82 days, depending on what area of the country you're in. 
and there's just really a lack of early intervention support as well so for some young people it means that being referred to specialist services is their only option but they might not need specialist care it they just might it just might be the early onset of mental health difficulties so kind of all of that mixed together um, makes it it can be really challenging for young people to get the mental health support they need and the support they need at the right time yeah thank you so much for that um insight charlotte for just that really clear plain overview and i think we just can't deny that this is really worrying and really shocking it's it's distressing to hear that our children and young people are not getting the support that they need and whilst this has been um a historic issue of underfunding at the same time i think we are seeing as you've alluded to just the impact of the pandemic um and the uh, increasing disparities as well and um it, it's both worrying and it makes me very angry. Um, but we will use that anger. We will use that anger to fuel our work. I think I think Charlotte summed it up very well. And I, I think looking at it from an economic perspective, you know, there is this sense of with children and young people and, and babies and so on, it, it, between zero and 25, what you want to have is consistency if you can. So we make sure that every child is, you know, has access to a midwife when they're born and, and then you know, checks and so on, and they go to school and it's standardised, you know, you get a curriculum and this is what happens. And and I think it's just, it's surprising when, given what Charlotte's just been saying, you know, that there just is that complete lack of standardisation when it comes to mental health. Um, and that we don't say, well, actually, here's the baseline and wherever you are, this is what you're going to get. Um, and that really is the basis of any investment strategy. So I think my, my conclusion for what it's worth is very much that lots of the right things are being said. I think we really understand what's needed. I think we understand the research about it. Uh, we know that there's a problem and we know what we need to do about it. What is lacking is then a strategy that says, and here is the money that comprehensively answers that question as well as we can. So that is, uh, I think, where I would sort of see it from the, the money aspect. Thanks. Yeah. And that is also uh, infuriating to hear, infuriating in the best way. Um, and again, yeah, we will use that information. But um, I mean, one statistic we mentioned in the recent report was from the Children's Commissioner highlighting that um, NHS spending on mental health for adults is £225 versus uh, £92 for young people. So there is a clear kind of disparity there where we're not um, addressing early on the mental health needs of young people. And we know that doing so early on could really um, change the whole trajectory of people's lives. So again very difficult to hear but Nick I'd love it would you be able to just let us know a little bit more about the time for action reports and kind of um, some of the key findings? Sure so in this uh, we try to take a, a systematic and a systemic approach really and look across the board you know zero to 25 what's the dream and in some ways it is quite helpful to be able to look back at the recent history of this country and compare and contrast maybe coverage that was there at the beginning of the 21st century and, and that now um, but really, it's to sort of say, well, OK, trying to give somebody a seamless, consistent, methodical, outcomes-based intervention across a, a time span, a long time span, requires looking at where children, young people, babies get um, those th that state intervention already. So what we've done is to say, well, OK, you know, what is it that happens around um, early, you know, the first thousand days? So, you know, we know the number of health visitors has fallen. Um, by 20%, we know that um, workloads are going up, caseloads are going up. So, okay, what we actually need to do there is make sure that um, we are investing in these services. And what's been interesting about the spending review from 2021 
um, is that it, it's very much it's offering big big sums, so three hundred million towards that period of time, five hundred million overall. And but actually, it's it, it's this lack of consistency again. It's this sense of some of you are going to get this and some of you aren't. And and I'm not quite sure when that became acceptable because <laughs> uh, it didn't used to be. Uh, and so yeah, so anyway, that's that's sort of what we what we do. Then we move into um, schools and saying, look, you know, between five and sixteen, you, you've got the majority of that population in similar provision pretty much there are some people who are not in similar, but you know largely they're in a building having a pretty similar day and this is therefore actually an excellent way to intervene and a moment to intervene over a long period of time and we know things like trauma illness and so on it all begins it, you know it can come up during these years so um, a really good time to do that but what we also see is that a lot of schools very quietly have had their funding for mental um, health sort of holdouts really so um, I've been a school governor for 22 long years, um, but what you see over that, I'm, and I'm chair of the finance committee, so I see the money. And and what you see though is, is sort of the amount being given to children that have additional needs, you know, falling, falling, falling. At the same time, as responsibility from the school is going up, so we're having to do more as a school, but with less money. Um, anyway, so it's, it's basically saying, look, we can take things like whole school approaches, which are very reasonable, very you know, very reasonable actually. Um, and actually get in there at this point where children are in that same place at the same time. Yes, on that point, Nick, whole school approach. Um, this is a term that we talk about a lot at the centre, but it might not be um, super familiar to many of our listeners. So Charlotte, I wonder, could you just give us a very whistle-stop tour of what we mean by whole school approach? Yeah, of course. So when we talk about a whole school approach, um, we can also call it a whole school and college approach, a whole education approach. But what we mean, it's a multi-component approach that looks at all areas of the school and how mental health and wellbeing is embedded within it. Um, so there's eight principles of a whole school or college approach, um, and these look at different areas, so ranging from culture and ethos, the school environment, um, targeted support, um, staff wellbeing, and how through those eight principles, mental health and wellbeing can really be embedded within the school culture. So it is about every part of the school looking at mental health and wellbeing and making sure it's supported. Um, we did some work with Public Health England and the Department for Education to recently up Update the whole school and college approach guidance for education settings um, and that provides a really good overview and really good advice and guidance for schools and other education settings on how they can implement a whole school and college approach here so I'd recommend looking looking at that as well. Yes and we will definitely again stick that in the show notes. So Nick you were talking to us about the amazing opportunity that uh, we have to support children's mental health while they're in school. What about children and young people who are not in school? Yes, exactly. And, and I think so between 16 to 18 is where you really just see this diffusion of um, opportunities. So some people, you know, go to amazing sixth forms. Some people go to miserable jobs uh, and apprenticeships and others go to great apprenticeships, actually. Um, but it's that sense of some people join the army, some people go to prison. And actually, there's a lot of different outcomes and uh, well, no outcomes, actually, just for four people. And but the point that's of interest to us when thinking about policy is that then it's much harder to track those people. So just as with our mental health forecasting work that Charlotte mentioned, um, you know, we we're able to tell the numbers that we think are going to be needing services. But what we can't tell is where in the system you're going to find them. So it's all very well us saying it's all about 17 year olds. But actually, if you don't know where they are and which ones it is and how to find them quickly, it could be too late by the time you do. So it's this idea about systems which listen and how do you track down the struggling 19 year old how do you find that person quickly 
um, and, and who are the um, the organisations that will um, find them. So this is really the idea. I think it, it contributes to the, the the funding the hubs work, which is the early intervention hubs, um, and and how those are um, something that can be a, a port of call that may be different to and better than the police, the fire brigade, and the accident and emergency crew. Um, I mean, of course, when I was young, I had these everywhere, you know. But then that was a long time ago. Uh, anyway, but um, but I think again with these hubs, though, it is really interesting in terms of again from just an economic, you know, cold-hearted economic perspective is. It's very difficult to um, see how there's going to be blanket coverage nationally. It's also very difficult to see what um, a, a sort of a fixed model is because each area responds correctly to its own needs. Um, but I think these are the kind of things that the, the campaign, I think, has really been trying to highlight in that actually just getting some money through the doors and letting professionals get on with it um, is usually quite a helpful approach. Yeah, definitely. And um, Charlotte, I wonder if you want to tell us a little bit more about the Fund the Hubs campaign, because I know it's something we've been working on a lot, as well as the coalition. Yeah, so the Fund the Hubs campaign, it all began last year, and it's a coalition of different organisations. So Centre for Mental Health, the Children and Young People's Mental Health Coalition, Young Minds, Youth Access, Black Thrive Global, the Children's Society and Mind. And we all came together last year to develop this campaign to call for early support hubs. So we recognise that there's a real gap in early intervention support for children and young people's mental health. In most areas, we have schools and we have CAMs, but actually we have nothing that's based in the community that's really accessible for young people to access support. Um, so we're calling the campaign calls for these early support hubs, which are spaces within the community where young people can drop in at a time that's right for them and access some immediate um, support with their mental health. So the hubs are aimed for young people with emerging mental health needs, or I really hate this phrase, but it's, I can't think of some, another phrase, so low level mental health needs, so that mild to moderate need. And it's about young people being able to access that immediate support and having a brief intervention. We know there's around 60 of these hubs um, that already exist in the, across the country. And what the Fund the Hubs campaign has been really been calling for is for long term and sustainable funding to not only set up hubs in those areas of the country that don't have them, but also to make sure that those areas that do have hubs have the funding to sustain the services and to keep them going. Because we know that early intervention support can be like a really important lifeline for children and young people. And if we intervene earlier, then we can avoid being more costly pressures being placed on specialist services later down the line. And we already know that specialist services are really struggling. So, yeah, it's all about increasing that availability of early intervention support in the community. Yes, exactly. And I think that's it's worth saying at this point that in none of this work are we sort of pitting adult mental health services against young people's mental health services. We're definitely in no way saying that we should be taking money away from adult services. We're rather saying that if we gave young people the support they needed when they needed it, we might be able to prevent some of these later problems. And the previous work that we've done at the centre um, called Missed Opportunities, which again I will link to, we highlighted there's a 10-year gap on average, that's on average, between um, people first displaying symptoms of a mental health problem to actually getting any support. And that's definitely been the case for a lot of people I can think of, myself included. And it is, again, there's a theme of anger coming out here, but it's infuriating to see this pattern revealing itself generation after generation. 
and to see that we're not investing where we really could make a massive difference. Um, so I guess it's worth saying as well that um, our work with Fund the Hubs, we were really, really keen and we were really calling on the government to invest in these early support hubs across the country. And we are yet to see that investment, but we um, fight on. Basically, we will continue calling for that um, because we know it will make a real difference to young people and their mental health. So, yeah, thinking about people after sort of 18, so the 18 to 25 bracket, again, you know, very different life experiences. I think I was probably living my best life uh, at about 21. I think I probably was. And <laughs> but um, but I think, you know, there is this thing of how do we support people, you know, when when they're coming into these challenging times. So, you know, between 21, 25 can be massively stressful. You don't understand the working environment. Again, you can be in prison. Um, your first relationships may have completely gone wrong. You may have been a victim of a horrific trauma thing. You know, how do we get to people so that actually they're not 40, they're not my age and basically still picking up the pieces of what happened 25 years ago. And, and that is, you know, that is really the pinnacle of any investor to save argument, which is we know this folks, we absolutely know this. We need to just fund it now. And, and it's just, it is, it is infuriating. And whilst I don't, you know, I can't draw on firsthand experience for that. It's very obvious just from the numbers, and therefore I just don't really understand why it's not um, purchased. Because you think that's quite obvious. Even if you even if you don't care and you're dispassionate about it and you don't understand it, here are some really obvious numbers. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's also what we're doing with this report, isn't it? It's kind of we're saying obviously there's a very clear moral and ethical argument for preventing children from suffering and promoting their mental health. But even if you are, have the hardest of hearts, even if you are purely based on the numbers, investing in children's mental health literally makes economic sense. So there's, there's literally no good reason why we aren't doing this. And um, in failing to do it, I would say we are letting down another generation. But that's maybe a little bit too bleak this early in January. Sorry, guys. Um, I think the positive thing I would say about this is we're not just saying here's a massive problem no one's doing anything grumble 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 we are saying there are actually things that can be done here's how you can do them here's how we can put this into place so I wonder if you guys could talk me through some of the key things you'd say need to happen as a result of this work what we're calling for. I think it's just like important to know as well like what we're calling for that isn't new stuff like it's stuff that is happening in parts of the country or stuff that we've seen before and it's been dropped and it hasn't been reinvested in so actually what we're just calling for I think really simply is investment and for as Nick said earlier that like really consistent approach across the life course um so it's not reinventing the wheel it's just building on what we've already got like for the hubs building on those services that already exist and making sure they're consistent and kind of tackling this postcode lottery and provision that, that we're seeing at the moment. So the overarching recommendation from the report was creating an investment strategy for 0 to 25 year olds mental health. And that's a really good opportunity for the government to set out like what could happen at each life stage, where the money can be invested, what needs to happen. And the report really like successfully like sets out like what we can see happening at each life stage as Nick has just gone through. But there's also opportunities where we're going to be seeing a new mental health plan being published, hopefully, in the next couple of months. So attaching an investment strategy to that plan and making sure that things are properly funded and invested in, I think, is really important. And I think having a strategy creates that accountability that actually we've set it out. Now, now we need to do it and we need to act on it. 
because I think that's another issue at the moment that there isn't really that accountability <laughs> about um, spending on mental health. I think uh, the thing that's been interesting for me about this as an economist is you're sort of you become a bit of a social tourist. So you you know you get to see things that I'm not, I'm unfamiliar with. So you know acute wards you know, I'm not I'm not familiar. And um, in terms of what Charlotte said, the thing I was massively impressed by was the the commitment skill and intellect actually of of a lot of these people that are working with young people and particularly struck with the um the clinicians working in the new care model approach which is about trying to get people out of acute beds especially when it's hundreds of miles away from your home which is what we're now seeing beginning to happen actually more recently suddenly all this is going up again um but what was fascinating about it was yes you can save lots of money you know tons of money um, but it was the, the the risk that these people were having to manage. Often at the end of their careers, actually, they're like, my whole reputation of my whole career is all on this. I'm putting it all on red. And it was really stunning because you thought, well, actually, yeah, if I was in that situation, I'd want someone like you to take that risk for someone like me and to get me back home, frankly, um, and to offer me something that is going to be really structured and after me. But in doing that, what, what I was unprepared to see was people having to take these sorts of enormous, it's all on you risks. You know, if you say so on a Friday afternoon, you're going to put this person back in the community. All right. You know, whereas actually it's so much safer just to do the same thing. Um, and I think this is where, you know, someone being the adult, if you like, and the government just having a strategy that says, yes, we agree positive risk taking is a good idea. Yes, we agree clinicians actually do know what they're doing. Yes, we agree we should ask the person involved who's receiving the treatment what they think and do something about it. You know, but it would just help everyone to, they would have legitimacy about them pursuing that um, in a way that I think is absent now. And that's why you see islands of great practice rather than nations of them, I suppose. Yeah, thank you so much for that, both of you. That's really helpful insight into kind of, um, as we've said, this need for a, a really comprehensive investment across the board and across the country. And as you said at the beginning, Nick, this idea that, you know, when did it become acceptable socially acceptable morally acceptable to deliver such a disparity of care across the country so I wanted to thank you both so much for that really helpful insight um the report's on our website we'd encourage you to go and read it share it (laughs) share it with everyone you know and I guess I'd just love to know you know what are we going to be doing as a result of this because we know that for us at the centre we don't do a piece of research publish it and then leave it to fester on a shelf our work almost begins where the reset where our report is launched because that's where we start trying to implement the changes we are recommending so Charlotte I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what the centre what the coalition are going to be doing uh, over the coming year or so to really put this into practice so um these are everything that's been published in the report or the issues we've spoken about uh like issues and concerns that our members and ourselves have long been campaigning on so now the fact that we've got this report and we've got it all in one place from an economic perspective is a really helpful guide and resource for us um to use going forward um, we're going to be seeing lots of change over the next year and in terms of mental health and this report provides a really good basis for us um, to start implementing work from so as i mentioned earlier we're going to be having a mental health plan um, from the government which is going to set a vision for mental health and mental health care over the coming years looking at preventing mental health problems through to early intervention through to mental health care through to crisis support which so that the report provides a really good basis for that so we'll at the coalition we're going to be influencing and working on that 
We're also going to be seeing some changes in the education sector. We're expecting a school's white paper, the publication of the long-awaited SEND review. Um, we've also got other things happening, such as the care reviews being published. And at some point, we'll be having a levelling up white paper as well to kind of match the levelling up agenda that the government talks so frequently about. So there's some real opportunity over the next year to create change. And it is, we can use this report, its findings and its recommendations to help us achieve that um, at the coalition will continue to work with our members to promote their work and kind of put their voices and young people's voices at the center of what we do thank you Charlotte. that's a really encouraging note to end on we know there are some big issues here and we will continue to fight for them at the center and at the coalition um, but charlotte nick it's been a real joy to sit down with you and talk about this thank you so much it's been lovely to speak to members of our own team and um, so thank you for your time. And uh, yes, you can check out everything we talked about in our show notes um, and do let us know what you think about the report, what you'd like to see us talking about next. Thanks. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the fight for equality in mental health, please support our work at centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. See you next time.